We are I. down with Tamara Knight uh, via Zoom today. Uh, she is a promoter, a trainer, a competitor herself, and a coach. Um, she's definitely well-respected within BC and well outside of BC as well in the fitness industry. Um, she's been in the fitness industry for how long, Tamara? Uh, 28 years. 28 years. So obviously, everybody say by this 28 years, the reason why Tamara is well-respected because of the amount of knowledge that she um, has accumulated over that time. And like I said, anybody who's ever been trained or coached by her just knows how amazing she truly is, which is the reason why that I wanted everybody to be able to um, have exposure to all that vast knowledge floating around in that brain. <laughs> well, thank you, Blake. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Um, so everybody, right before we, we started recording, Tamara and I, we were actually talking about um, like different body types. And because we are fresh in that conversation, maybe we just kind of continue it on um, with everybody. The reason why I brought it up with Tamara before we started recording this episode is because I keep seeing a lot of about it on, you know, like Facebook and Instagram, just social media in general. And, you know, talking about like mesomorph body types and endomorph body types and ectomorph body types and, you know, I feel like it's steering people down the road that you have to be categorized in one of those and then coaching people to eat towards or train towards one of those. So, um, you know, maybe Tamara, if you don't mind, if you could just kind of maybe break those down in a traditional sense, if somebody was to look them up, like what each one of those would mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the standard definition of the body types are the ectomorph, the mesomorph, um, endomorph, um, you know, one of them, the, the ectomorph has a, a tendency, a hard time to build muscle. They tend to be leaner. Um, the mesomorph um, has a high metabolism. Uh, endomorph has, often stores higher body fat and whatnot. Um, and, and while I, you know, I, 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 we, we do have all of those types of body types, so, you know, you see them all the time, the pear shape. Um, this the one person that can seem to eat everything and never gain a pound. And this is all very true. Um, but in terms of, from a coaching perspective, when I'm coaching clients like that, um, there is no uh, one size fits all in terms of a diet for each particular type of person. Um, even one person that may be a mesomorph may have a different diet every time that we, we do a show you know, um, or an athlete that's competing in any other kind of event, we may have to change things up at every single time that we're competing. So I don't think that there's any kind of uh, one size fits all in terms of the diet itself for each individual. Yeah. So would you, um, you know, like if one, you know, body type, you know, is going to be a little bit harder, um, you know, to be able to lose fat or naturally has a tendency to gain more fat, you know, would you, because the one thing I keep seeing is like, these are the people who should be on like a ketogenic style diet, you know, like, would you agree with something like that, a statement or? 
Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's a good thing that you brought that up. You know, we're seeing a lot of that. I, I mean, I can't tell you out of the seven days a week, there's six days of the week that I get asked that same question about, well, what about keto? So keto has been around a long time in, in the bodybuilding world. I mean, we're famous for pulling off a keto uh, a diet, not myself personally. Um, does it work? All diets work, Blake. Every you're in a deficit, it's going to work. Um, is it sustainable? Not really. I mean, I have people come to me that have done a keto diet that are asking for my help to get out of it. Because you can't just go back to eating normally. You have to work your way out of this ketogenic diet, right? Or you're just going to balloon up. And I mean, the reality is you're a trainer yourself. You've seen it. You've been around a lot of years. You They lose weight on a diet. And then they're when later they're bigger than they were before, right? So... Um, no, I don't think that any certain type of diet fits a person. I think that as a coach, as a nutritionist, you have to work with each person as an individual and you need to figure out what's working for them. I mean, it does all boil down to calories. Yeah, and you know, and it's one thing I, you know, I heard something about six or eight months ago that, you know, really resonated with me too is that, you know, you would never train the same way for the rest of your life. You know, you'd never drive the same car, you know, you'd never wear the same clothes. So why people think that like, there's going to be this one size fits all diet or like, there's this one diet that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And the more we kind of break that mold and, you know, say there might be, you know, different days during a week or, you know, different weeks during a month or different months during a year where you're going to eat a different way. Absolutely. That's what we have to kind of adapt to. And, you know, like, the one thing that he was talking about was just looking at kind of like seasonal eating, you know, like how, like what we would before, before we had like kind of grocery stores is that's what we still, you know, have like the enzymes to be able to do like the most efficiently at these periods of time. You know, it made a lot of sense to me because I've never really looked at it as, you know, having like a kind of revolving transient style diet, but it does make a lot of sense, you know, outside of any body type or ketogenic or, you know, like, high protein loaf or like anything along those lines, just looking at it, that it, it, it is more of like a, an, an evolution, like weekly, monthly, or yearly. Absolutely. And all of my clients that have worked with me, you know, working with me now in the past, doesn't matter. They know what I expect of them and that's eating real food. So, and it's really unfortunate when you look back and how we've evolved with fast foods and, and convenience foods and whatnot. I mean, when you get down to it, if you're eating foods that don't have a nutrition label, you're good. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, the thing is it, I just, the one thing that I, I face pretty regularly and the thing that I don't understand the most is why we have this driving force in this connection, not me personally or you, but I just, I mean like generally, where people just want to eat terrible food. Like it, it, it seems like it should be more of a primal aspect to us as human beings. Like we want to eat better quality food, but it just seems like that connection isn't there. You know, it, it's funny because I mean, I've eaten a certain way pretty much all my life and you do get the comments. Well, don't you ever just want to eat some real food? How come you just eat that? Well, cause I actually like my food. It sustains me. It tastes good. It makes me feel good. It makes me perform well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's really, I don't know. I mean, 
in my research on, on foods and what I've seen from clients, you know, but I can't, you know, I can't stop eating this or once I eat this, I want to eat more. I mean, there, I've done a lot of research on additives and whatnot and, and actually they do add things to the food to make it more palatable, to make it highly addictive so that you want to have more. You know, there may be something that you would never suspect has sodium in it. And sodium is hidden in there in order to uh, make you want to eat more. See, and that's the part for me, like I've talked about it on this podcast before, but I talk about it with people in general a lot is that I'm, I'm shocked and disgusted that big food companies are allowed to hire psychologists to be able to manipulate foods to make them highly addictive, to make them more marketable to us considering that all these foods, you know, it's not like trying to make broccoli better and more appealing to everybody. It's, you know, like chips and chocolate bars and just all this junk that, you know, that had trans fats in it or, you know, like, or they're finding ways to be able to put things like trans fats or, you know, more sodium or more sugar into them. And uh, like, I just think that's wrong. It is. It's very wrong. And then you've got big companies like Coca-Cola who always say, we do not market our product towards children. But yet then they market a product of a Star Wars theme. Yeah. You know, know, marketing something that's highly addictive to a vulnerable community. Very much so. So Like, you know, saying like, well, we're not marketing to children, but we know if those children drink that pot, they're going to have a really hard time drinking that water again. I went grocery shopping just the other day um, with a dear friend of mine who uh, was severely injured. She has a hard time getting around. So I take her shopping once in a while. We were in the frozen food section. We were getting some frozen vegetables for her. And she picked up a package of this green giant vegetables and it had the word seasoned on it. So she threw a bunch into her buggy and I said, oh, let me see those. So I turned around the ingredient list. That's, I look at the ingredient list on everything. And because it was seasoned, the second ingredient in there was sugar. This was vegetables. The second ingredient in a bag of vegetables was sugar. Sugar. And it wasn't teriyaki vegetables. It wasn't anything like that. It was seasoned vegetables. And it was Green Giant was the maker of the vegetables. It was frozen. um, I think it was an Italian mix. And the, the second ingredient was sugar. Now, the second ingredient being sugar, and it's a bag of vegetables. And anybody knows that your ingredient list is goes by the highest amount of whatever's in the bag goes first. Shouldn't the vegetables have been first? Well, and that's the one thing I was going to say, because if it, was, if it was a mix of vegetables, whatever singular vegetable had the most, that would have been first, sugar would have been second. So you would lead me to believe without knowing what the product was, that there'd be other vegetables in there that were below sugar. That's the amount of sugar that was in that. But the added sugar, it was added sugars. It wasn't even like natural sugars. I mean, sugar, sugar, but it was added sugars to the actual mixture to season the vegetables. See, and I almost feel like that's deceiving too, because season is so close to seasonal. Like, yeah. like kind of like a little, you know, if you don't invest too much time in looking at it, like you could really just think, oh, oh, seasonal, seasonal vegetables. Okay. I'll grab something. And it's just like, these are fresh, but really it's, seasoned and then packed full of sugar the list goes on and on i mean you go to costco and who doesn't right i mean you can buy in bulk it's cheap and you see extra lean ground turkey so i'll have my clients say to me well what about this stuff 
but here we go. I mean, it's not bad for you by any means, but it says extra lean. They think it's ground turkey breast. It's not ground turkey breast. Here in Canada, we have specific laws with poultry. Um, if it's breast, it must specifically say ground turkey breast, ground chicken breast, right? So when it's extra lean, it's typically 60% dark meat, which is skin and thigh um, with the skin in there. And then you've got the other 40% is breast that they mix together. So you're, and you've even got cartilage in there. So you don't have any extra lean brown breast. So that, you know, they fool you. You might as well just go have a steak if that's the case, right? See, and those are the interesting things that I, I feel like the manipulation of words and the manipulation of food. And when people want to throw their arms up and say, it's just so hard. Because it is like, you know, even just to navigate like the dishonesty, like the lying and like the word manipulations, the packaging manipulations, like all these kind of things, even you're doing all that, just even get to the food part. And then you have to start analyzing the food that's actually in it, just like what you were saying that, you know, how many people are going to know, understand that or want to invest the time in it? Because as soon as they see turkey for one, you automatically, okay, I'm on the right track. And then you yeah. extra lean, then it's like, I'm even more on the right track. Yeah. And yeah. your brain just shuts that down, shuts that off and say, I'm going to continue on from here. But the onus needs to be on the consumer. We need to educate people. These foods are always going to be here. It's up to you. You really need to educate yourself and take the time. You know, don't take a day where you're rushed at the grocery store. Take the time to actually read your labels before you buy, put it in the buggy, right? Because there's so many different sauces and, and, you know, seasonings or flavorings or whatever it may be where they hide sugars. You know, one of the famous stories that I tell when I teach a nutrition seminar is Cheerios. I mean, most, who doesn't give their kid Cheerios, right? So back in the day, we just had Cheerios. Now we've got every Cheerios under the sun. We've got honey nut, we've got, um, and then they, back in the day when the multigrain craze was in, they came up with multigrain Cheerios. Well, what are those going to taste like? They're already multigrain. They're made from oat. They're green. Yes. But now they wanted to market it to sell it. So they made a multigrain Cheerio that tasted like sandpaper, and then they coated it in sugar. And everybody thought they were buying a better product than the regular Cheerios, when in fact they were buying one with three times the amount of sugar. Well, it's like all the low-fat things too, right? You know, like you... Most people, as soon as they see low fat, then they're not even going to invest the time to be able to understand that the sugar concentration is higher than what they just bought in. Oh, you know, totally. That's the part where it's like, yes, like the onus is on the consumer, you know, but at the same time, should it be that difficult? You know, should we have to invest that kind of time when we go into a grocery store saying like, I have to continually do this because all these new products come out? Because really what it is, is like, I kind of contributed that, it's just finding new ways to be able to slip more sugar in everything that we eat is really what it comes down to. You just have to find the new sneaky way that they found to do it. And they do, and they continue to do it. And, you know, and it's marketing at its finest. Those are my famous words. There you go. Marketing at its finest. That's what I tell my clients all the time. So my other spiel is if you just stick to real whole food, all your vegetables, all your, you know, rice and oats and, and potatoes and sweet potatoes and yams and all of those wonderful things. You can't go wrong. See, and this is my, this is my, my real beef with skip the dishes too. 
because it's like accessibility of a blend of all of these things you know that people should be and it's just it's so easy and like this totally checking out it's like you know this instant gratification it's easy in every regard you know but it's this most detrimental and everything too like you're not going to the grocery store you're not even investing the time in to be able to figure out what you're eating and what's in it you know but then it's coming from you know a place that's probably buying the cheapest ingredients which all the cheapest of it's probably good it typically has the most salt and sugar and like all this kind of stuff and it's like they complete disassociation with food. Absolutely. I totally agree. But then again, you know, it's a vicious circle. We live in a society where everybody is just go, 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 go. Everybody has to work. Mom and dad both have to work. It's not like it was before. You know, rent is sky high. Cost of living, you know, the the raises aren't matching. Wages aren't matching the cost of living. And people are just going and going and going. And so they sacrifice the food right they actually end up paying more you know i've heard a lot of people complain well eating healthy costs a lot of money no it doesn't it's a lot cheaper in the long run well and you know it's all those things too you know like where people look at like the overall like convenience of it it's like you know if there was more education on how easy it is to eat healthy you know because like eating healthy isn't it doesn't take hours to make healthy food. It's not like healthy food is just this ab- abundance amount of more time or like even like what you said from like the cost of it. It's like, well, you know, there was this chef, you know, about like a year or two ago, I remember when he said, he's like, you know what, if you're not eating vegetables, who cares if they're organic or not? Just eat some damn vegetables. Exactly. You know, and it's just like, you know, getting into like people to say, okay, well, like it could be expensive, but you're probably not eating any nutritious food anyway. So just start with the bare bones, you know, like it doesn't have to be like, you know, the, the best or what you deem to be the most premium quality, just go buy like some fruits, go buy some vegetables, go buy these kind of things and just realize like, you know, start cooking them and seeing how easy, you know, they can be because, you know, for me, I love just straight up like mashed yams, you know, like I just, oh yeah, they just taste fantastic and how simple and how easy. Yeah. It doesn't get any easier than that. I think one of the biggest things I hear from clients that are just starting to work with me, um, I always ask them to log food for me when we start working together. And, you know, there's processed foods in there, maybe protein bars. They think they're healthy or rice cakes or whatever it may be. Um, And then when I give them their nutrition plan, the first words I hear, it's too much food. No, it's not too much food. It's the volume of food just got greater because we've actually – you know, changed it over to real foods, not processed foods. Yeah, and then they're shocked. Your body can process all this food, and they're losing all this fat. <laughs> well, and you know, and that's always like the I think the toughest mold for me to break with people is the mentality of that. Like the less is more. Like I have to eat less to be able to lose more weight, or you know, anything along those lines. But then finding out that once they actually dial in what works the best for them typically people are always eating more yeah always and not necessarily in terms of calories they're eating more in terms of volume of food and then when they're actually full and satisfied and eating they don't want to eat all the junk yeah (laughs) well that is you know like when you're satiated right you know like because it's like that the one thing that the with the research that i've been doing is just how 
like having an abundance of simple sugars, you know, like in the gut and how that becomes like ATP blocking and why you don't get satiated and why you will overeat all these things that have like simple sugars in them. But I was originally thinking about like candy, but then, you know, I was thinking a couple weeks ago, I'm like, but everything has sugar in it. So it's no wonder why people overeat junk food because if the base of everything is sugar and if that sugar becomes ATP blocking, you know, then you're going to overeat it because you're never really full. You know, like you need to be able to eat, you know, like these good quality and nutritious foods. So you become satiated and you are full and you, you feel like you want to stop. Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. So when people come to you and then, you know, like, you know, typical person, lots of processed foods, not really focused on like the health and nutrition. Like, do you notice over the years and, you know, just working with people, like how much, or like the better quality of the mental health and emotional health that people have when they start eating better? Oh, one of the first things they start to notice is they're, they're full. So they don't want to eat any extra junk. They have way more energy. They're not as tired or sluggish, more focused at work, better mood. All of those things come with the change in the lifestyle. And, and it, it boils all boils down to food. And see, like, I always kind of look at it that, like, that alone, you know, like, the emotional balance, the energy balance, you know, and being able to navigate your day just a lot more efficiently and a lot better, a lot better attitude. Why is that not alone the selling case to eat healthy? You know, outside of, like, losing weight or building muscle or anything along those lines, like, why, why is that not the selling case to eat better? I just don't think enough people even try it to understand it. And that's the whole problem. You know, they've, they've gone round and round and round. They are more, they will run to any diet that is the current rage, any promise of any supplement, they will spend their money everywhere until finally years later, they finally get tired of it and go, Oh, well maybe it's just about making a lifestyle change. And it's funny, like, even with how many people, when they get there, they're just like, oh, it's just so much hard work. Like, the, a lot of people always try to find that pill or that, you know, shake weight or seven-minute abs thing. Like, it just, like, the vast majority of people are just so connected with that environment. We're just, like, wanting it to be so easy, except for that just making that lifestyle change. Um, being around so many people and, and training and coaching so many people over the years, what do you feel like the success rate is for actual fundamental change in lifestyle? Like people, once they get in, they get in that good groove who actually stick with it. You know what? Honestly, I'm very proud to be able to say that 75 to 80% of the people that I've worked with make a lifestyle change and stick with it. What do you That's think? pretty good numbers. And like, do you think that that is because like, like, you know, like you're so good at accountability, like, you know, you're, you're, you're on people, like you set these systems or, or what do you think that is that gives them that success? Definitely not. One of the things that I do is I do hold my clients accountable, but one of the things I tell them right off the get go, I am not going to be here for you forever. I am not feeding you. I am not shopping for you. And my ultimate goal is to have you grow your own wings and one day tell me that you're fine on your own and me knowing that you're good to go on your own. If you still want me to coach you knowing all of that, then that's even even better. 
But my ultimate job is to sh- give my clients the tools to do things on their own. See, and I like, I always say that to people too, is like the, the last thing that I would ever want is somebody to work with me because they feel like they, they have to, there's like a need it just simply because they want it or they enjoy it. But it's amazing how many people in our industry create that dependence, whether it's physical or mental, emotional dependence. They're like, you can't do this without me. Like, this is, you know, all because of me. It becomes an experience about just like the trainer. They don't give their clients the tools to be successful. I'm, I'm very clear uh, on that, um, that, you know, really, ultimately, they are working towards improving themselves for their future. Um, and that they have to do the work and that I'm just there to guide the way, but ultimately, you know, they need to learn how to do this stuff on their own. And, and, and the majority of them, and I have to say, I do have a lot of clients that have been with me for many years, uh, whether they're doing shows or not, it's regardless. Um, but they're there because they want to be there, mm-hmm. not because they have to, they're, they're quite capable of doing it on their own. Have you noticed over all the years are people the same now as what they were, you know, 10, 20, you know, 30 years ago? Like, are, are, are we fighting the same battles over and over, or have we changed over all those years and it's different battles that we're fighting now? Oh, we're fighting different battles. Very much so. We're fighting social media battles. Um, I mean, I'm all for social media, um, but unfortunately it's created a lot of false... Um, sense of what you can accomplish in the time frame you can accomplish and what you can maintain. Um, so that kind of part I'm, I'm not a, a fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely changed. I mean, the diet industry is here forever. It's never going to go away. Um, the supplements are never going to go away. I mean, when I started bodybuilding, <laughs> you know, you would have never drank my protein powder because I wouldn't drink my protein powder because you couldn't even get it to your nose. It smelled like dirty diapers, right? Like that's just, that was the nature of what we had available. And now you're looking at a supplement industry that, you know, you've got every flavor under the sun and how many supplement companies, right? And things are very different. Are you, are you a big supplement person? Do you take less supplements or just all try to naturally? I do not, I don't take any protein powder. I take BCAAs when I'm training. I take glutamine when I'm training, like during my training. Um, other than that, I take vitamin D and a vitamin B. Yes, yeah, I used to be big into taking supplements before, but I haven't really for probably six or seven years outside of maybe like a good multivitamin and multimineral. Uh, but I used to just be like... You know, because I guess that's when supplements kind of took their first big explosion, you know, about 15 years ago or so. And it's like it just hooked you right in because the marketing was good and the promise of all these, like, gains and performance and endurance and all this kind of stuff. And then when I stopped taking them, I'm like, I don't really think that a lot of the stuff that I took ever necessarily did anything. The only things that did would be maybe stuff that had like niacin and you kind of feel that flush or something that had a bunch of energy or stimulants in it and you just got jacked up off it. But you know, other well, than this, that- is, this is the scary thing, Blake is, you know, back in the day we didn't have pre-workouts. You drank a cup of coffee. And then when pre-workouts first entered the scene, 
you know, you had those ones with the niacin and then they started putting like, you'd get a hundred milligrams of caffeine. So, you know, a really good espresso or a few shots of espresso, and then you would go train. But now I'm I'm not kidding you. There's pre-workouts out there that are 400 grams of caffeine in a serving. Like, how is that okay? It's not okay. Well, and that's even just like, the one stimulant, because, you know, even most of them, they'll have like, you know, three or 400 milligrams of caffeine and then other stimulants on top of that as well. You know, yeah. and that's... And, and people wonder why they're, you know, they they can't lose weight because their adrenals are fried <laughs> on top well, of all the other stress that they have in their life, right? Yeah, because everybody's still drinking the coffee that well, they yeah. drink every day anyway, and, you know, like, and having all this other stimulants. And, well, and then the energy drinks on top of it, right? Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that I, I try to regularly tell people is, is not, is forgetting that a lot of people, I think, forget how much of a stimulant caffeine is, but also sugar. And sugar being in all of our products, we understand, like, why adrenal fatigue is so high. But, again, it's something that people just don't understand, you know, is adrenal fatigue as well. When I tell a client you need to stop all stimulants, they look at me like I've completely lost my mind. Yeah. But I make them. What, uh, like that poses, obviously because people like these days are so hopelessly addicted to like all the, you know, just like all, like tons of coffee, tons of stimulants and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, maybe just for like the listeners, you, you could explain why that you get your clients to stop all, all stimulant-based products. So I can get their metabolism going to where it should be. And it's, it's a long process because most of them have abused them for so long, whether it's in the form of trying different fat burners, excess coffee, excess pre-workouts, then you're working out on top of it all, which increases cortisol levels. So you put this all together, plus maybe a stressful job, stressful kids, who knows, right? There's stress everywhere. And you put it all together and it's just a complete recipe for disaster. You know, I'm not even feeling my cup of coffee anymore. Well, no kidding. You know, your, your, your adrenals are taxed to the max. So we just got to stop. We got to stop. And they hate me. Uh, about a week later, <laughs> they hate you because <laughs> that's they fine. You know? There's stimulants anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. Um, about a week later, they start to feel a little bit better. A couple weeks later, they're starting, and they're like, they actually feel good, like clear headed, right? It was a big brain fog before. I think a lot of people don't realize how much anxiety people walk around simply because they drink coffee and you know products like that where you know they just all this like anxious pent-up energy that is just in the body that you don't really need doing anything with where you know I think the boredom of most people's lives that force them to drink coffee but typically people are just sitting there all day long anyway which wouldn't even mandate or dictate having a coffee period like you don't and, and don't get me I'm not against coffee by any means I mean I, I love coffee but you know there's a point where you've got to be like okay if you're drinking eight cups of coffee a day and then taking your pre-workout and drinking energy drinks you have a problem (laughs) or being able to drink a cup of coffee and go to bed you know I think that's a because I hear that all the time from people how about you know like coffee doesn't affect me or you know like they can have a coffee within an hour or two before bed and it's just like those are always in my mind big warning signals and stuff where it's the it's tough when people have walked themselves down that road Oh yeah. The red flags go off if I hear something like that. Yeah. So then what would you do to help uh, that, you know, like to be able to help kickstart somebody's metabolism. So you get them off these, you know, like stimulant based products and you start to like cleanse their system. And then what's 
stage two? Oh, I always, it, it, the diet is a hundred percent cleaning that up, getting, you know, proper nutrients going. That involves a lot though, because if a client walks in the door only eating 800 calories for a long time, compared to someone that walks in the door eating 1600, there's a huge difference in terms of what I can initially initiate their diet at, right? So some people, you know, we have to work together longer and slower. And I tell everyone, if you think this is some kind of fast process with me, it's not, you're in the wrong place because we don't do things like that. Um, So the diet's a huge thing. A lot of times it's tapering down on the training. Uh, A lot of times, you know, they compensate cardio. You know, if I'm not losing weight, then I need to eat less and do more cardio. And it's just a big vicious circle. You know, they're, they're wasting muscle that they're trying to build. Um, You know, it, it just, it's just a big mess. So often I have to look at everything, training, diet, stimulants, everything. Yeah. It does. And I know, uh, cause you're not a huge fan of doing cardio, right? Uh, no, I, I'm not a huge fan of doing excess cardio. Um, and, and I don't think if, you know, I'm a, a believer if my client has to do two hours of cardio a day, um, in order to get ready for a show, then they probably shouldn't do that show. That's a little bit excessive. Well, and yeah, like it, it should, because like, that's like just the cardio <laughs> person. That's not even like the training or like, I couldn't even imagine committing like that to, you know, my life, it, especially for people who are working, you know, regular nine to five jobs or, you know, more on top of that as well as to try to carve out, you know, two hours of cardio, then like an hour for training and then anything else in their life period. Like that's just uh yeah, it is amazing though that people they they will you know the reduction in calories plus the extra cardio then they dip so low in their calories and their cardio is so high and just like well, really- and I I deal with it with my clients too you know like I, I'm telling you every single one of them is an individual and 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 I'm working with one girl right now in fact I had to talk to her in length this morning because she, we, we incorporate some carb cycling into her diet, right? So on low days, low days are low, you know, they're low calorie and we need to get out of that low day. We have to fire it up with a high day. And so we were doing that, but we also threw a treat meal in there. She, and, and then her weight dropped the next day. So I had to show her like, this is what's happening. You actually need more food. Yeah. So I actually increased her high days while she's dieting for a show because I need that little boost every once in a while. Right. And she couldn't wrap her head around that. It is because we've just been indoctrinated that like there's only one way to be able to lose weight is just continually eat less calories. You know, then when you get those little bumps like that, it's such a foreign concept for people to latch onto and grab onto, even though they can see like, you know, feel it in their body, see it on a scale, all those kind of things. Like there's all the representation there, but our mind just won't let us just firmly implant that in there. No, it won't. And the same goes for excess stress. I mean, if someone is just wound up tight and just stressed to the max, that weight's just not going to come off no matter what we do. It's Mm -hmm. just not. Cortisol is just through the roof, right? So oftentimes it's about just chilling out, (laughs) just taking it down a notch, go meditate, do some deep breathing, read a book, whatever it may be. Like you got to take some time to chill out. And sometimes that really works wonders too. I know it even works wonders for myself 
you know, my, my weight is always very, very stable. I know my body inside out, but I know when I get really, really stressed, weight can come on. Mm-hmm. And then I know I need to just chill out for a bit. Yeah. And you know, it would, and even too, like in conjunction with that, we were talking about just like chilling out where, you know, the amount of research that's out there now with, um, you know, like how sleep is like outside of anything else, the number one contributing factor to like your success with weight loss too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just sometimes taking a little bit more me time. And I find, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, right? I'm 49. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be 50 this year. Um, but I just find like, it's just, everybody just gets busier and busier and busier and smartphones make it so that, you just never shut it down and people just need to learn how to shut it down sometimes. Cause that can make a world of wonders in, in all of your success. You know, don't you think though, like, you know, cause we're only really talking diet at this point in time, right? You know, like a little bit of lifestyle choice, but probably diet, but don't you think that everything is continually steering us back to like how far the wheels have come off the bus and how we just need to get more, you know, to a place of like peacefulness within our lives and a sense of homeostasis within our lives of like not as busy, you know, like less stress, taking less on getting more sleep, connecting just with our environment and the food around it because our body is built and designed that that's where the success is achieved. But we just, again, like what you said, like we just find ways to be able to, you know, get busier and, you know, like, what are your thoughts? Have you heard of like Elon Musk's neural link, you know, the, the implant on your brain to be able to have more bandwidth. So you're essentially connected to the internet. No, I haven't heard of that. Oh yeah. But you know, it just goes, you know, like one step further, right. Where it's like, you know, you don't know enough, can't do enough. So, you know, we need to find ways to be able to, you know, connect externally, you know, with our environment to be able to get our mind and our body to be able to do more, you know, when it's just like, we know that, not only physical health, but this is a a lot of where like, you know, mental health issues come from too, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, stress does play a huge role in terms of what I do because my clients, when they're under stress, they stress eat or some don't eat at all. So, and that's not good either. Right. Um, And they turn to food oftentimes, right. To help relieve the stress, to help, I've had a really bad day or I'm working too much or if they're tired, they're eating more. So all of that does play a huge role. Is that something new you think? Like, do is it recent that we've turned to food or do you think people have always turned to food for Always, always. And that goes back to, I think, childhood comfort foods, you know, grandma's house and her cookies or whatever it may be. Um, I think that's just human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of like a really interesting, like how, like, we really typically don't set our children up for success long term, because we, we kind of force those same principles in when they're young based on the the methodology is like, okay, well, they're, they're young, they can get away with it. Or, you know, like all those kind of things where it's like, you know, like say grandma's house with the cookies, the beach with the ice cream, like, you know, all of these, you know, different tools. And, you know, it's like, when I picked my daughter up from school, the other day on, uh, on Thursday and for whatever reason, every child in the whole school got one of those like large sour keys for Easter, like on the way out the door. And I was like, for one, I just wish somebody would ask me if I'm okay with things like that for one. 
Yeah. But the, I, the irony of it all is that we get those newsletters by saying, like, don't send this stuff in your kid's lunchbox, but you're going to send it home for us. Oh, it's constant. You know, they have uh, – I always pack healthy lunches for my kids, always, and they're involved in all of that. Even, you know, if they bring a muffin to school, it's a homemade muffin that I grind oats and I make this muffin with bananas. There's no sugar. The bananas are sweet enough, all that stuff. But, yeah, you're right. They get rewarded at school with candy. They get rewarded at school with, you know, a, a junk food day or a party. And they send home a, a notice, you know, if you'd like to bring something. And my pick on the list is chips or cheesies or, you know, there's no fruit plate or veggie plate or homemade muffins or anything like that. No, just send all the junk for the party. You know, and even if there is, and then you're like, I want to be the person who brings the veggie tray. You know, as soon as that you do, because other people are bringing the chips and the popcorn, like it's just going to go to waste anyway. That's the part that I have a tough time with where it's like, let's all get on board. Like we have a really easy opportunity to be able to all get on board here. Like it, it doesn't need to be like that. And the more the children can see that no matter what environment they're in, you know, like they're always going to be exposed to like healthy eating, not like, okay, well at home, mom and dad are forcing me to try to eat healthy, but I can go to school and actually get rewarded with this, these chips or like these cookies or these sour cheese and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, because as we know, once our kids get to school, like their teachers have more of an influence on them than, you know, we do. They're just around them more. Right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see, have you noticed any like, the, like shift with like children, you know, like over the years, like, you know, in your opinion, like, are we putting more emphasis on educating our children with eating healthier? Do you feel like we're still lacking in that? Or we're still, you know, kind of following the same old path with our children? Society in general, here's my take on it. I know myself personally, I'm educating my children. Um, I know a lot of my clients educate their children. But I think society, we're, we're not teaching people enough about health and nutrition. I mean, Canada came out with a new food guide, which is actually pretty good for once. I was actually pretty impressed with it too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe we're starting to make steps, but you know, there's food companies, manufacturing companies that are still a lot to blame for, um, you know, the lack of knowledge, right. And they're still marketing things as healthy that are not necessarily as healthy as what people are being led to believe. And people are actually thinking that they're doing a good thing for their children when in fact they could probably do a little bit better with a little bit more education and, and, and thought. And do you think it's kind of relatively superficial to, you know, because like for us, you know, who can look at this new you know, Canadian food guy and kind of analyze it a little bit more, but do you think it's pretty generic just to be able to like publish something that even though that it may be good, like what does it even really mean? You know, like, yeah, they don't teach enough of it. I, they need more education in the school. Um, I did see a bunch of comments that were flying when the Canada food guide came out about how, um, that's all fine and dandy, but I can't afford to eat that way. So, you know, I think there needs to be changes at a higher level too, to, you know, when you eat junk food, you've got more sickness going on and, you know, make the healthy stuff more affordable for people, encourage people to want to, you know, cook at home instead of running to the fast food place or, or the fast food section at the grocery store. You know, we need help from higher up. 
Well, and, and this, these are the things, you know, that I look at, when are we going to make the shift that, you know, if, if with each person in Canada that has, you know, type two diabetes, if we're spending like as a society, you know, 10 or $15,000 a year investing in this person's, you know, health, where they, they've kind of have chosen to have this disease, right? You know, but where then do we say, okay, well, we need to take that 10 or $15,000 knowing that we're going to spend it in, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now on this individual and start looking at, you know, like some subsidies or find a way to be able to promote them to eat healthier now so that you don't have to spend that money later on. Yeah. Well, I wish that that would start happening a little bit of foresight, but you probably don't want to get me started on all that corruption. <laughs> <laughs> well, but these are the things though, right? You know, like with food lobbyists and, you know, like the, the, I think the three things, and these are my rabbit holes, and I, you know, maybe I'll, maybe after I tell you my rabbit holes, you can explain yours too. So my three rabbit holes been with nutrition are, uh, for one, how we talked about like the food psychologists and companies being able to, you know, specifically manipulate you to force you to fight these battles they know you're going to lose because their their food is highly addictive because you're not finding these combinations of food in nature. That's why they're so addictive, and they're playing on that and preying on it, and it irritates me. That's like my rabbit hole number one. Um, my rabbit hole number two um, is definitely like with like food lobbyists and like especially like how those Harvard scientists came out and finally admitted that they were paid $50,000, you know, by the sugar industry to be able to say, you know, that, you know, that fat was bad and, you know, we should steer away from fat and sugar is actually good and it's not, as, you know, as bad as you know, what people think. It's like, it's things like that that just – like irritate me to no end because they all come down to like misinformation and manipulation. And that's like my third rabbit hole is that how, even if you try, there's so many forces that are just, they're there to manipulate you that even if you try to decipher through the information, like most people aren't going to invest the time into doing it, you know, but if like, if we allow these, these companies to be able to lobby our government to be able to create these programs and, you know, allow these foods to be able to make like, like trans fats, for example, like when they knew that trans fats were legitimately killing people, they're horrible to death. Why give companies three years to be able to take trans fats out of foods? You know, they're killing people, you know, like, you know, trans fats are bad, but it's like, we'll give you three more years to keep pumping that food out into public before you have to find a way to be able to change it. Instead of just saying like, no, this product is off the shelf now. Because it's about money. Those companies are paying money. You know, they're, it all boils down to the almighty dollar. And um, that comes in the, I mean, don't get me started, pharmaceuticals, all of it, right? It, it's just a big, vicious circle. You know, and it isn't like, those are the tough things, you know, like where, you know, when you say like, you know, don't get started, you know, I'm, we, you know, obviously share a very similar opinion with it where they, you know, being led down a road where there's no other options. Mm -hmm. It's like only these options exist and there is nothing like outside of that, you know, and there's so many options. There are. And unfortunately people live like, like with like those horses with the blinders on. Right. And they, it's just tunnel vision and, you know, people are turning into robots. We're just going to do what we're told. You know, we're just going to do what's available to us here, whatever seems cheaper. They, they don't have the foresight to look at the big picture. You know, it, it's cheaper in the moment rather than what's actually going to be more beneficial for them, for their livelihood, for their life. 
And, you know, I think that's where, like, too much, like, blind trust in, you know, in government, you know, in different organizations has been there with, with our health. You know, like, obviously, you know, we need government systems for certain things, but, like, I really don't feel like the government should have such a foothold on, like, what are health, you know, like, what that means to us. And, like, really, because I think it's really hypocritical for government organizations to be able to complain about, like, uh, or, like, talk about how much money we spend on health care, when at the same time they're being lobbied by companies that are forcing all these people who have, like, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and all these kind of things, where if they just stopped allowing them to be able to oversaturate the market with this junk food, we exactly. wouldn't be having a lot of those problems. Exactly. And I have a hard time calling it food, right? Because, you know, you read those ingredients, that's not food to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, like, and you look at it, if you read the, the back of a bag of carrots, it says carrots. It's easy, pretty easy to understand, right? Oh. You know, but when when you turn over like a bag of like, you know, frozen, you know, carrots or like a mixed thing and like you're reading through all these lists and, you know, if you have to Google search like eight of the 10 ingredients in your mixed peas and carrots, if it doesn't say just peas and carrots, there's, there's a problem, a problem. <laughs> right? That's a problem. That's a big yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you see us kind of slowly coming back around as a society or as or a culture, you know, like with the you know, shop local, buy local, you know, have a garden, you know, like take pride in your community. Like, do you see it going in in a direction or do you think it's all too surface? I do definitely see it going in a direction. I definitely think, you know, everything goes in cycles. I do think that, I mean, internet and social media are a good thing too. Don't get me wrong. Okay. So getting information out there about these are your options, you know, um, how to eat healthier, how to cook healthier, all of those options are out there. So if people are willing to start making some changes, um, they definitely have the information and I definitely do see more of it. Yeah. Yeah. People are trying and, and when they're, they're not certain in their search. They are coming to people like me or other people um, that might be able to guide them in, you know, in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, and too, I think like opening up the doors, you know, to like a little bit more, you know, like lifestyle medicine, you know, like functional medicine, you know, kind of taking a step outside of like the doctor's doors and say, okay, well, there is going to be more of this, you know, like we need to get you to somebody who can talk to you about like nutrition and, you know, like how much of a difference, you know, like these food choices are making in your life and, you know, like you're just your overall lifestyle in general, right? You know, you know, not just going to the doctor and, you know, it's being like, okay, well, I'm feeling a little bit depressed and here this, this SSRI, but you're like just realizing that like their diet might be like 40 or 50% sugar of their total net calories. Right. Well, and I think, you know, we have, you know, a, a really bad epidemic with a shortage of, of medical care right now, whether it be at the hospital level or, or your regular family doctor walk-in, people are being forced to look outside the box. Yeah. You know? it's maybe a good thing that they're having to look at alternative ways to look after their health. Do you think that our, our healthcare system is overtaxed because of a lot of like unnecessary like visits to the doctor, or, like a lot of unnecessary like treatment plans because of people, how people have just chose to live their life or like things that are preventable, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I've, I don't go to the doctor very often, but when I'm there and I have a look around, I can tell you it's 100% lifestyle mm-hmm. for the most part. 
Yeah, because, you know, somebody asked me the other day when the last time I went to the doctor was, and, like, it had to have been, like, eight or ten years ago. Like, I can't even remember the last time I was. I just legitimately don't feel like I need to go for anything. Well, exactly. But, I mean, you know, you've got your regular checkup that you might need to do or whatever it may be. And, and, I mean, I can tell you, you know, just looking around, um, society in general is unhealthy. And that's contributing a lot. Yeah. Do you think that, like, you know, people are starting to be a little bit more educated themselves, too, in that, you know, the way that we choose to eat isn't just physical health. It has a lot to do with, like, like mental and emotional health as well. I don't know if we're there yet. I know myself, educating my clients, they're, they're understanding it. But I don't know if society is there yet. Do you think it's important to start getting that message, you know, out there? Because, though, I feel like... You know, when people talk about putting the cart before the horse, that, you know, like if you feel better mentally, emotionally, you want to be more physically active. Absolutely. You know, so it's hard, you know, when you look at it from like the opposite, like, you know, eating healthy for physical performance, like, I feel like it's like, it's not looking at it the right way. You know, if we look at that, you know, with the, but if, cause if you're still eating like crap, you try to get your energy by having a, a rock star energy drink and a cup of coffee to try to peel yourself off the couch to go to the gym. You know, like, like you said, like we've talked about, you know, like we need to look at the things before that system, you know, like kicks in and saying, okay, well, how can you just wake up and, you know, feel refresher and like, how can you feel better during your day in general? You know, I honestly have not met too many new people that have come in contact with me that get that. They usually end up learning that with me. So how do we get that message out? Um, you know, I, I don't have the answer for that. I think, you know, hopefully some social media will help with that. Um, I mean, I've countless people that I've worked with that tell me, well, what do you mean I have to eat in the morning? I, I, don't, I don't eat my first meal until 11 or 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I can't, I'm going to puke. And so I say to them, well, we need to come up with a different way. If you can't eat, you know, eggs and oatmeal or whatever it may be, solid food, you know, maybe there's a way that we can make that lighter, but you need something to get you going in the morning, right? Get the the brain cells moving and, and whatnot. Um, but usually that's a matter of me pushing to get them to do that. So what got you all into this in the first place? Like how, how did this journey start for you? And how well, many, when did it start? How many years ago? Like I want to kind of get a little bit of your journey. I see the, the lights come on over there. I want to know a little bit more about it. Um, well, I was an only child um, and I was raised by just my dad. So I was very competitive with myself and from about the age of 11, I started competitive cycling, um, marathons, triathlons, very endurance based. Um, before the grouse grind was a thing, the grouse grind was a thing for me. Um, back when you didn't have to pay for parking and all that stuff. I when used to back that to the goat trail. I miss like the goat trail, not the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to actually go do that every single Sunday morning and actually for three years held the fastest time in my age category. Um, so it was just like stuff like that. I was constantly pushing myself. And at about the age of 19, um, I was going to the gym and, but I used to go and do a circuit thing and it was always like a lot of endurance cardio and whatnot. But I met one of my best friends, uh, Zoe Lindsay, 
And she and I, we used to go to the gym in the morning. We'd be there at like 3.30 in the morning. And then we'd get in our business suits and we'd go to work. And anyway, she had started bodybuilding. And so I started always looking for a challenge, got into heavier weight training, and just loved what it was doing with my body and whatnot. And so it quickly became my new passion. The endurance part of it kind of went off to the side and was more about recreating me, building my body, building what I wanted. Um, sort of the more the, the endurance style, you know, side of athletics for you, like, was that why it was so easy to make that shift? Because, you know, usually endurance athletes are like, they're, they're a whole different breed, right? You know, and to make a, such a hard 90 degree shift and go the opposite ways, pretty difficult. It wasn't so much bored. It was about, I love challenging myself. And I had found a new challenge that I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. And one that was going to take me a really long time to get really good at. Yeah. And so I started bodybuilding, like weight training. I started take like as much knowledge as I could. I started taking courses. Um, I, I went with the International Sports Sciences Association. I was just, it was just nonstop courses, knowledge, courses, knowledge, just working with as many people as I could and just loving every bit about the sport. And then in early 2000s, um, started, I competed a couple of times and then life kind of, what's that? How did you do? Uh, well, I mean, they were just small regional shows. I think I got like a second and a third place, but that was fine. And then, um, I just kind of put that on hold, um, in 2003, my dad passed away, uh, realized life was really short and I didn't have any kids at that point. I was 33 and I was married before. And, um, although he was a good man, that wasn't the man for me and just decided I needed to make a life change at that point. And we separated, decided I wanted to have kids I did meet my future husband at the gym, of course. And in 2006, got pregnant with my first child. I was training until the day I gave birth. I was squatting, you name it, I was still training. And then I had him, I was 37 years old, and decided I wanted to have another one right away. So that was my mission. So although I was still training uh, when he was still a baby, I... um, decided I was getting pregnant again, and I did. And then I had my second one, I was 39. And then because I was turning 40, I decided I was going to get up on stage again, because I wanted to show women, this is 40, this is 40 with a baby and a toddler. And so I trained for the 2009 Sandra Wickham. And when my youngest was 11 months old, and my oldest was two, At the age of 40, I just turned 40 the month before, I stepped up on stage and I won first place open, first place masters, best poser, and the overall. Wow, that's so crazy. That's awesome. (laughs) And the bricks of fortitude that you must have stacked to be able to train with having like kids. I have no idea. (laughs) Oh my God, that just would have been crazy. I had single-handedly like cut down all the people with all these bullshit excuses not to be able to get shit done. Well, I mean, I had you know two in diapers. I was self-employed, 
So, and at that point I was still doing a lot of personal training plus coaching. So I, oh man, I was busy and I didn't feed not even one jar of baby food to my kids. I made every single bit of food that entered their mouths. So yeah, there's no excuses, none. I wanted it. I wanted to get on stage and I wanted to show women. I don't want to hear that you're 40. I don't want to hear that the kids are stopping you. You can do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I was done with kids, obviously, you know, then I was just competing, competing, competing up until uh, last July. I competed in probably what will be my last show. How many Um, shows do you think you've done over the years? I think it was 12 or 13. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of shows. Yeah. I've been to nationals three times. Um, and I've done pretty well at the national level. The last time at the, I did the international show just this past July and I got a second place and a fourth place. That's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I've done well in that and, you know, gunning for a pro card or anything like that was never, what I wanted every single time I competed, I just needed to be better than the last time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, although my competing days may be over, my competitive inside myself is never over. And, you know, I've moved on to other things, although I still go to the gym, um, other things that are interesting me right now. Just So just like bodybuilding, when I first started, when I was 19 years old, was such an excitement for me. I've found two other things that are going to fill that time now. And although I've been a skier for since I was three, I discovered snowboarding this year. And I have to say that's like my number one passion right now. And, yeah. and the other one now is downhill biking as well. So that's kind of where my heart's at right now. Have you rode any of those fatty tire bikes up on the mountain? Not yet, but I intend to. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So when you say that, you know, like you really just, you you wanted to pave this way, you know, for like, you know, like people in general, but especially like, you know, like women saying, okay, you 42 young kids, like we can get this done. Like, like what what are some tools? Like, what, what do you say to people? And they're just like, I just, like, I don't have, you know, like you're a different human being. Like, I, I don't have what you have or, you know, like, what do you say to this? That's. Because it's kind of like the, the foundation in between, like, we are I, right? Because I always think that when people look at me and they're just like, Blake, you know, I can't believe you did this, like, you know, 80K or you're, you're doing this or that, you know. But, like, I'm no different than you. Like, I really am not. I just, I'm too stupid to understand I can't do things. So I just. Well, and, and, and that's really it. I'm no different than anyone else. We all have the same 24 hours, you know. Um, we all have issues that arise in life. We all have different stresses. We all, you know, have jobs, whatever it may be. Um, How bad do you want it? How bad do you want to prove this to yourself? And that's, I think the hugest thing is you're not doing this for anyone but you, right? And you've got to realize that. So that's number one. And, and, and I'm really not, I'm not different than anyone else. I just, and maybe, like you said, maybe it is just stupidity. We don't know how to just stop. I actually love seeing myself get better. And I think I love seeing myself get better, but I also, I always try to look at that. Like I don't have the capacity to understand that I can't do it because I always have such an eagerness to try. 
Oh, absolutely. I don't ever think that I can't do something. And I'll tell you, when I was learning how to snowboard, that is the one thing in my whole entire life of being athletic that proved to be an extreme challenge for me. And I got so pissed off, Blake, I can't, I, I, I shit, you know. So here's the thing. I've been skiing since I was three. So 45, 46 years. Okay. I live on a mountain. It's my passion. And I decided here, I'm going to try this snowboarding thing. Do you know how humbling it was to be for a week down on the magic carpet? And I would stare up longingly at the mountain. Like that's all I wanted was to go up there. So the first day I just, I just said, screw this. And I grabbed my skis and I went up and I, you know, did all my runs up top. And then the next time I came down, I'm down on that magic carpet again. It was, it was bad. So I came home, I had a little pity party. And then I just said to myself, like, this is not you. This is not you. I grabbed my board. My husband's like, where are you going? I said, I'm going out to the carpet. And off I went and I swore to myself, you're not leaving here until you get this. And I did. And I got it. And then I was terrified to get on the chairlift. And I was like, it's the same as getting on stage. Just get on the goddamn chairlift. Yeah. So eventually I did. And now I'm skiing black or boarding black runs, right? It's yeah. just, I, I knew I could do it. I had some blips, but I got mad at myself. See, and you, you brought up something interesting that once I realized this, you know, I think it was about, I would say seven or eight years ago that when I spent even a one second thinking about whether I should do it or not, I'd always typically talk myself out of it or like why I shouldn't be doing it. Then when I'm like, you know what, I'm just not going to do that anymore. You know, like what's the worst that's going to happen? Like it, it's burnt me a few times. So yeah, yeah, sure. hundred percent. But at the end of the day, like I just, and where it was, I was with one of my buddies up at um, like Cal Lake and we're standing there with a cliff jumping and we're like, we're on like, whatever this like 40, 50 feet. I said, I'm just like, I know I'm going to have fun as soon as I jump off this thing. I know I'm going to climb back up and do it 10, 20, three more times with this first one. I just can't do it. And then I'm like, fuck it. And I launched myself yeah. off the side and loved every second. I'm like, I just got to do that. Like every time with everything, you know, just yeah. don't spend the time and waste the time thinking about like why it's going to go wrong or why I should do it or why I can't do it. Like just, just do it and just fail and, you know, just keep trying and just get up and keep on going. And that's definitely what I've been doing. <laughs> Snowboarding is such a challenge when you first learn, eh? Oh, wow. <laughs> but now it's so rewarding, right? And, you know, and I have every opportunity to go out and do it. And it's something that I want to master. I mean, I have goals set out for myself for next year, you know, different parts that I want to go and different things I want to do. Um, so, and a loving, absolutely loving that challenge. But I try to instill that same thing in my kids. Like the world's your oyster. If that's what you want, you just go for it. And I have to say they're good. Like they're going to be on the freestyle team next year. So really, it's, yeah, it's really, you know, it's very rewarding to see that come out in my kids. So my question for you now is, do you prefer skiing or snowboarding? Oh, I'm selling my skis, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> See, and no matter, like, as I grew up skiing initially, like my dad told my sister I had to ski, but as yeah. soon as I strapped on a snowboard for the first time, I'm like, oh, this is where the money is right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so much better than skiing. Definitely, definitely. But, 
Yeah. So, I mean, we had talked about, um, you know, what got me to where I am, but I kind of missed a little bit in there about, you know, in the, in the journey of from 2009 until this past year, um, in the competing world and whatnot, I was, I was involved in, in the organization, highly involved as an athlete rep. Um, I did a little stint as a, as the vice president, um, very, you know, involved in all aspects of the sport. And I desperately, I used to, um, volunteer a lot of my time stage managing shows for different promoters. And, I always try to think of things from my client's point of view or from the athlete's point of view at the shows. And there was things that used to bug me, Blake, like really bug me. And so I went for it. I just decided I wanted to promote a show and I wrote a business plan. And wouldn't you know it, five years ago, I ended up getting my first show, uh, which was the Night of Champions, and it's still running strong. Um, so started promoting and from that time on, I knew exactly how I wanted to run because it was my show and I got to do it my way. And, um, what I were have- some of the shortcomings that you see that, that mean, cause it's not easy promoting a show. It's not easy fulfilling that role. Like, but like, what were some of the shortcomings that you seen where like, this just has to change? Um, just not enough emphasis on the actual athlete, um, it was more about how much money the promoter could make. And I get it. It's a business. But for me, I seriously just love doing what I'm doing. I mean, obviously, I don't want to lose any money. But, um, you know, I absolutely love having a good experience for the athletes. Because in my opinion, that's what's going to grow my show. If an athlete has a good experience at the show, they're the ones that are going back to the gym on Monday. And people are, how'd you do? And they're like, oh, that was such a good show. They're the ones that are going to encourage other people to do a show and what show they should do, right? So that's, you know, kind of where that was at. Um, having very good relationships with my sponsors, um, treating them very well, trying to get as much as I could for the athletes. So sometimes that, that means as a promoter, you know, not taking cash in pocket for, say, a sponsorship, but perhaps in exchange for prizes or, or samples or whatnot to make that a better experience for the athletes. This year I'm changing things. I now have two shows, a natural show and the night of champions, um, making the show shorter. Why should they sit around all day long? So the show starts at nine. Uh, we'll take an hour break at lunch and then they'll come back for finals. We'll have you out for dinner, right? Instead of have you out at midnight or, or whatever it may be. See, and, and it's, it's interesting you bring that up because it's like, um, like prize packs, like good prize packs are something that everybody talks about and everybody talks about yours. Yeah. Uh, like absolutely. It's just because really as like an athlete, there is nothing else, right? You know, like, yeah, you went to like get on stage, but like a prize pack is like a huge part of the experience, right? You know, they just have like this big beefy bag full of all this wicked stuff to be able to try. And like, it is a part of it. And uh, like the length of shows, like absolutely, you know, and, and even just having like, like a full audience for everybody, you know, because that's what it's telling you where people are coming in and out and leaving once, you know, their friend or their family members done, they just kind of get up and leave, you know, but the more condensed shows and stuff, I feel like that that would probably be easier to keep the audience full with everybody. Well, I just think it'll be better for sponsors, athletes, for everyone in general, right? Mm -hmm. You know, 
a traditional show that you go to the the prejudging at nine o'clock in the morning and say you get out at noon or one o'clock and then the evening show doesn't start till six that's a long time to do what to sit around to go to the mall you know um i just find it too long and i'm gonna try it by shortening it up (laughs) so the actual the actual time of the show hasn't got shorter it's just the time in between the shows that you've condensed so the time in between. So why sit around? What, what are you going to sit around for? Let's just get on with it. <laughs> well, and the thing is too, you know, like when, when athletes are competing at these shows, it's not like they're competing. If they, it's from nine till noon, they're not individually performing from nine till noon, like a, you know, like yeah. a, a hockey game that's gone into double overtime, you know, like they've gone on, they've had, you know, like their, their couple of minutes on stage, you know, then they've done. So even from that nine till noon time frame, like they've sat around a lot maybe stayed, maybe haven't stayed, you know, or like, you know, all those kind of things as well too. Right. So. Yeah. So that's, you know, I'm going to try that this year, Ben. And so far, you know, what I'm hearing uh, from people is they're loving the idea. So hmm. yeah, why not? I'll try anything once. <laughs> yeah. How, uh, how have you found with like these, these changes? Cause maybe a year ago, there was some changes, you know, and like how bodybuilding's ran and all that stuff. Like how, how are you dealing there? What have you noticed with like athletes and stuff that the, the chatter amongst that, like how things have changed? Well, there was a change in organizations two years ago. Um, I do think that the majority of people um, have kind of gone towards where this, the Canadian Physique Alliance is and down that route, um, which is what I promote my shows under. Um, I mean, there are a few people there, there's always going to be other organizations. There has been for years and you know that with the WBFF and IN, you know, BF and all of those other uh, organizations. So, um, but there's been a lot of different categories introduced, um, which, you know, is a good thing because it allows more people an opportunity. I mean, prior to, uh, bikini coming in, you know, you either had to grow a lot of muscles or you didn't compete. So now, you know, with other categories being in there for, for men and women, there's a lot more opportunities for people to compete and do that kind of thing. So there's a lot of positive changes in the industry. Do you let people compete in, in multiple categories in your shows or have you in the past? Uh, as a promoter, yes, they can enter as many categories as they want. Yeah. yeah. It's always been like an interesting question like, or like just like an interesting concept, you know, like we're like competing in like in multiple categories when you should only like be technically classified you know, as what would be the, the reason that we allow that at the regional level is because sometimes people just don't know where they fit. You yeah. know, like we may have a guy that ends up doing physique in the board shorts, classic physique and bodybuilding just to see where he fits. And then based on that, we'll go to the next level based on his performance at the regional, right? Yeah. See, and like that does make sense because, you know, if, if people don't, I've never really looked at it that way before. And I've always just been lost, like, you know, well, how can you be in bodybuilding and, you know, and be in like the sports modeling side? Like, it just doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. But if you were doing it as like kind of like a discovery, you know, mission, at like the lower levels, then that, that does make a lot of sense. Well, and that's what they're doing. Or maybe, you know, they've been prepping for 16 weeks or 20 weeks or whatever it may be, and they just want more time on stage. And that's okay, too. You know what? You're paying your entry fee. If you want to be in all the categories, have fun. You know, it, it, it's, you've worked hard. It's your time. Get on stage, see where, you know, where you're going to do the best, and then go on from there. 
Well, and I guess because nobody's guaranteeing you like a first, second, or third finish and stuff. So if you want to get up and be a fish out of water because you want to spend some time on stage being in a category that you maybe shouldn't be in, like in a place last week, you're going to have to be comfortable. I mean, honestly, you know, on a, from a coach's point of view, so you're talking to a coach and a promoter. From a coach's point of view, I would always encourage my client to compete in the category where I feel they fit. Yeah. But yeah, not everybody has a coach either. So being a coach and a promoter, like, like, do you get any of your own clients like wanting to, you know, compete in like multiple categories? Uh, yes. And some have that actually can do uh, a couple of categories. I did have one guy last year do very, very well in both physique and classic physique. So he had the body for both. Do you get, do you kind of get any of the, cause Obviously, like, you know, we both know, you know, as pretty general knowledge, everybody always classifies the bodybuilding industry as being so political and this, that, and the next thing. Like, do you get any, like, you know, heat or pushback or anything because you're a promoter of a show and, and like, a trainer saying, like, oh, your your clients do better because, you know, you're in the industry or you're a promoter? Does anybody kind of chatter like that? That chatter used to happen. That chatter does not happen anymore. We have very, very clear, you know, this is the look we're looking for. And the head judge will tell you, he'll, he'll tell me, you want to know what look you need to bring for your clients? Look to the Olympia. That's what they're looking at as, you know, for the, the figure Olympia, the bikini Olympia, whatever it may be, they're basing their look on that. I mean, obviously at a regional show, you're not going to look like someone from the Olympia, but that's what they're, they're going from there. Yeah. And so it's very, very clear, uh, cut and dry. And, you know, the judges that are on the panel, um, they, you know, they can't have any conflict of interest in any regard. They cannot be a coach, a trainer or anything like that. So, you know, I think that we have come to a place now where that kind of stuff won't happen anymore. Where, where do judges come from for, for shows? If they can't be like a, like a trainer or a promoter, like, like what, what's their qualifications or what's their background? Uh, for instance, we have one um, that is a uh, math and physics teacher that is an IFBB pro. We have one that is uh, a police officer that's an IFBB pro. We have two of them that are police officers. We have one that um, I, I, she works, you know, in retail or something. She's not a, a trainer, but she's done very well up to the national level. Another guy that's done well up to the national level that works in a unionized job. So, I mean, they all have, you know, regular jobs, but they've also made bodybuilding their passion and they've done very well, whether it's getting to a national or a pro level and they want to, you know, do something within the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, do they have to have any like prior like experience or is it it's simply just like based on passion? Like, is there any like course to take to learn how to be able to, you know, like for um, people or. Yeah, there's pretty extensive training for them. Um, what they have to do initially is if there's interest, they have to uh, let them know that they want to be a test judge and then they'll be given a show to come to and they'll sit in a, you know, a row behind the judges and they'll score the athletes. And then the head judge will look over all of those scores and decide if they can move on to the next level of training. And then in that level of training, it's extensive training. All of our judges can do continuous training throughout the year, whether it's the head judge that flies out um, or it's the head judge in each province that does the training. But okay. yeah, very extensive training. And 
And I'm finding that now um, things are very streamlined. Um, the actual scores are very in line with each other. Um, it's very, it's very well done now. Do you, do you think like the, the rise of like, you know, like kind of, you know, having like people putting more time and, and energy into fine tuning this process is because of the rise of the, the bikini category and they're just being more, you know, like competitors, more money behind it, you know, more, you know, people investing time in the sport. Like, do you think that that's kind of made a big shift? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we definitely have a rise in the bikini, uh, category itself. Um, I, I can attribute that to a few things, but, um, and definitely right all the way up to the Olympia. I mean, it is a moneymaker. There is a lot more people that come to see that and a lot, and, and it's a lot more achievable for a lot of women too, right? Because bikini is going to be so big. Do you think that bikini should be its own separate show? Or do you think that like how, cause like, there's just so many athletes in a bikini category. There is a lot, but I'm also seeing other categories die down. Um, I will honestly tell you that figure is nowhere near what it used to be. Women's bodybuilding doesn't have anyone in it. Even women's physique never really took off to where uh, they thought it would be. Um, men's bodybuilding, we're starting to see a shift away from there now into classic physique. So quite honestly, I mean, for lack of better words, I just think that we are the same categories. They're just called something else because they continue to evolve every single year. Mm -hmm. So like bodybuilding, it's like, is bodybuilding in the traditional sense kind of dying out in BC or Canada? It is. We're seeing the numbers decline. You know, bodybuilding in itself is a, you know, it's a very hard, hard on your body sport. And to get to, you know, an elite level, oh man, it's hard on your body. I mean, you, you look at some of these top Olympians, you know, that, you know, have back problems and knee problems and, you know. And it doesn't help with Ronnie Coleman coming out with that documentary. Yeah. That he well, exactly. Right. I mean, you, you see, and he doesn't regret anything that, you know, that, that yeah. he did to get him to where he was, but he has to deal with, with this now very, very hard on your body. It's, it's not healthy. Your body doesn't want to be at that low uh, body fat. It will fight you every step of the way it affects all of your hormones, you know, so it, it's a very hard sport. Um, and now with the introduction of classic physique, I, I think a lot of people find it a little bit more appealing. Bodybuilding kind of went way over the top, right? It, it, it bigger and better all the time and, and highly unachievable for a lot of people. So classic physique has kind of replaced that. And I like that because they impose height and weight restrictions. So, you know, for a certain height, you can't go over a weight. You just can't. Or you can't compete. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's a way of controlling size and keeping the aesthetics and keeping the tight, tiny waist, right? Which is a very positive thing. Yeah. So just kind of going back more like to the roots. So like you just, you know, maybe like bodybuilding is dying down, but it's also just kind of more organically going, well, maybe not organically, but it's being nudged in the direction of going back to like where it never should have left. Precisely. That's my personal feeling on it. And a lot of the guys are loving it. I'm not hearing any complaints whatsoever. 
bodybuilding is still offered. It always will be, but we're not seeing the numbers that we used to see. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, even if it's like the, those numbers are there, but if realistically like the, the environment is still there for these guys to be like, but like the face just kind of looks a little bit different. Like, you know, it's not really dying out. It's just kind of moving over a little bit. Right. Yeah. That's precisely what's happening. Yeah. That's cool. Cause like, I've always appreciated like that more because you know, when, whenever I always thought about bodybuilding is more like you think like those like Greek gods, or, like those statues, you know, like we're like big muscular guys, but it was never like just the mass monsters. Like it was, it was interesting that it went there to kind of see like the potential of like human beings. But you know, like you said, being so unhealthy on these guys and looking at what they're going through at such young ages and just how many back surgeries and knee surgeries and back fusions. that. Oh, and it's the eating alone. I mean, you know, think of the off season. I mean, these guys are tipping over 300 pounds to maintain and to grow. Right. And you know, that, that, that takes its toll. You know, I was just talking to this like old school bodybuilder the other day and like he was the, that was the one thing that he talked about was like just the eating, you know, just being so full and just having to pack in more calories and more calories, you know, trying to get like five, 6,000 calories in a day and, you know, just all this volume of food and, you know, like your stomach would always be upset. You just always felt bloated. Just, you just needed taking another bite of food, but you just had to get it in. And it's like, it's just crazy. Yeah, exactly. And it gets old and it gets tiring. Right. So, you know, this is nice with, with the, the new, the new classes, is, you know, there's not this need to bulk up so much. And, um, you know, you have to stay within a certain weight for your height. And, and it's quite nice because then what you've got is you're fine tuning things, right? So maybe it's your rear delts or maybe it's the hamstrings or whatever it may be. You can work on fine tuning and, and really just bringing in a better look and a sharper look all the time. Where, and that's where like, you know, cause I, I always try to use the analogy when it comes to like bodybuilding, what it is in my mind is that, you know, like you are this chunk of clay and you're this artist and you take this little knife and you just got to shave a little bit off here and shave a little bit off there. And then years and years and years later, you just have like this incredible body. And I feel like that's what they're trying to promote now is that same thing where like they say it's just like the little details. You're like, how can I get these rhomboids to pop? You know, like how can I get like these tie-ins to sever, you know, like just all these little things that should be the focus. Um, do you think that bodybuilding kind of got a bad rap to like where it went for that short period of time? Like people kind of, you know, looked at the industry, you know, as something that you shouldn't do or shouldn't be done or how un- quote, quote, unhealthy it is or. Yeah. In, in general, I do think there is a, a perception um, because people don't fully understand it. Right. They just look and they're, they, they make assumptions. I mean, I've dealt with it myself. I've had people that I've never spoken to come up to me when we actually do talk and say, well, you're actually really nice. Well, whatever made you think, <laughs> what made you think I wasn't nice, you know, yeah. it's because of how you look. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but I think that's human nature. Again, we, we make perceptions, um, you know, if someone's really intense in the gym and just, they don't want to talk, they're just doing their thing. You know, you make a perception if that's not say yours training style. Which is funny because it's like, that's the reason why we're all there is to be able to like to push and to work out hard. But right. I was like this persona of like negativity, but all you want is just to be able to have that time and that time for you to, and to be able to work on it. 
Exactly, exactly. But but you're right. I think now we're getting more to uh, an organization of where they're looking for the details. Yeah. It's not just about, you know, your shape anymore or how much muscle. What about the details? That's going to set you apart from everyone else. What is, what is something on, on people's bodies that you just love? Like what, what, what's your, your muscle group or like, what do you see that you're just like, ah, I just love that. Honestly, Blake, every single person I meet, I look at their legs and it tells me a lot about a person. Yeah. Yeah. What, like, what do you see? Like, what, like, is that something that you, you can describe or is that just something that like, you got to be in the moment to be able to describe that? Um, well, it will tell me a lot because obviously a cyclist's legs are going to, or a, or a marathoner's legs are going to be different than a bodybuilder's legs, but I can tell them apart. And I, I, I know what sets those people apart from just your everyday people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It just, there's a certain amount of work that goes in the detail of the legs. It doesn't just happen. You know, especially from a bodybuilding standpoint, you know, like there's just, there's a lot of different ways to be able to text the, you know, like the legs and, you know, to be able to bring out like the separation and just, you know, be able to create that balance and stuff, right? Where like, you know, like really well balanced legs do like amazing on, on a person, you know, male or female. They do. They do. And that's from all angles. Like I'm not just talking about quads. I'm talking all the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads, all of it. And the calves. <laughs> have you always been that way? Like legs have always, always. been? Always. 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 I just, I, it's wrong for me to say it will tell me how hard a person works. If that's wrong for me to say, but it, it gives me a sense of their work ethic mm-hmm. for lack of better way of saying it. Well, because people typically shy away from training legs, right? You know, so it's even the fact that they're putting in time goes to show like what they prioritize. But if then they prioritize that on their own and, you know, kind of sculpt those legs a little bit more, I I see exactly where you're coming with that for sure. And it's not just, you know, legs. I mean, if you're talking about training, people shy away from pushing themselves. Yeah. I mean, I see it every day. I see it all the time. And you can always push harder, but they, they, they feel the muscle giving up and they stop. You know, I, I remember one time training a very long-term client and uh, we were doing some, I, I think it was like a split squat and uh, her back foot got a cramp in it. Oh, I have to stop because I have a cramp. See, that would never enter my mind. I would never stop for a cramp. Mm-hmm. I would soldier on through. But again, like there's, there's a different level of um, sense of urgency or, or whatever you want to call it. It's because you've laid those bricks of fortitude though, right? And like, and you also know that like it, it's relatively superficial, but you know, like I feel like it, it's been a lot of people's detriment that like, you know, if you feel a little bit cold or, you know, if you have that little bit of crab or things are uncomfortable, like you're immediately told to stop, you know, and correct that it should be different to find this, real ambient side of life that just like this ultimate neutral comfort, no matter what's going on. And, um, I'm an adversity junkie. Like I, I love pushing my body, you know, like in at five o'clock today, I'm going uh, downtown with one of my buddies and we got, um, he has a place in one of the buildings downtown that's 27 floors and we're going to put on a 40 pound weighted vest and go pound out six sets of these stairs. I'm just like, I just, yeah, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, 
I wonder if I can get through one without stopping. And then, but what I'm really looking forward to is the battle on like five and six when you're just trashed and you just totally. try to go and like you're climbing up the stairs and you're just like, yeah, like, but I, I love that. So like when you're saying you get that cramp and you don't even process stopping, I'm like, I'm exactly that same way. But, but this is the thing that I want to figure out. This is my biggest challenge is how do I get that mentality going in my clients? You know, I think it's like, it, it, it's such an evolution because I think that every time that you feel that one time, you want it just a little bit more. But when it comes to adversity, like the, the one thing that I've learned is like, if you go from like just a little bit of adversity to like a ton of, like it just shuts people down, you know, but it's like the little, like to keep on just pushing like those adverse environments, but not always the same. Because like when I only ever used to just work out and you know, like that adversity came from like lifting weights and then I go do something else, like it would shut me down so fast. And the more I became like multi-sport, like doing so many different things that I realized those little stacks of adversity were like, you know, I call them like my bricks of fortitude building my castle, right? So it's like, you know, in each one of those sports, it just gives me a little bit something different. It tests me in a little bit different way. And they all just keep stacking on top of each other and building it. But it is a really hard thing to fine tune. But like, I, I just say flat out to people, like I have so much further to go and I've been working on it for 36 years, you know, yeah. so, but like adversity is, I look back on it when I used to hate it when, you know, my dad would drop me off in the field when I was like seven years old in Southern Alberta in the middle of summer. It's like 35 degrees dry, hating life. And he would park a half ton truck in the field and he'd say, fill it up with rocks when it's full. We'll drive it over to the ditch and you can throw them in the ditch and I'll drive it back out into the field. And at the same time, well, he would drive around in the tractor air conditioned cab with a hydraulic rock picker. Yeah. And he's like, I was you before. This is where I'm at right now, but this is like, you've got to earn your way up into this. And I just hated life. But I look back on that now and it's like, that was my base layer of my bricks of fortitude. You know, I hated, but I can appreciate those things so much more now, you know, and it's where to be able to see those environments and just really appreciate. But I, I do what you've explained through this too is, it's the takeaways. It's like the, well, how can I make that a little bit better? You know, like how can I transfer this into like these other areas of my life? Because like adversity is adversity. It's all the same. You know, I'm having a tough day at work or tough day with a client or, you know, like, you know, traffic sucks or, you know, like all these kind of like it, it allows me to be able to deal with all those things so much more efficiently. Absolutely. And I do see it. I do change a lot of them. Um, they definitely do change their way of thinking when they're working with me after some time, you know, that, and, and the ones that really have good success that really make the changes year after year, they're the ones that really do push it just a little bit harder. Right. And you know so, what that all stems from though, is because, you know, like, you know, we've obviously kind of like, you know, by association have known each other for a long time, but the one thing I do know about you and the thing that you've explained consistently through this is that you're always pushing the bar you know it's like whether you said when you were 40 and you know you wanted to take this on to prove to other people it's like you know you've seen these deficiencies in the industry so you know you took on promoting your own shows or 
you love skiing, could easily kept on skiing, but you're going to snowboard and you sucked at it, but you went back on. It's like, you know, it's not, it's passive education. I'm a big passive education person. And as long as you're keep laying those bricks, that's ultimately what stimulates other people to do things. You know, and because oh, I definitely kind of learned that, but it's all the people that I find in the positions that like what you are in and what I'm in who don't really keep on doing it, keep pushing that bar. Like, I don't even feel like people have the right to be able to tell people they push harder. But when you're that person, you know, like pushing that bar up and bumping that bar up, and you're like, I'm going to do it at 40 because people say at 40, you can't. I'm going to do it at 45 because people say at 45, you can't. I'm going to do it at 50, 10 times better than 40 because I was, really wasn't supposed to do it at 50. Well, and I mean, honestly, you know, in the gym, I'm not a social butterfly at all. I mean, I'll, I'll you know, not a, a hello to people that I, I know and recognize, but I've had countless people, you know, come and talk to me after I'm done and tell me that the reason that they came is because they see me work and I inspire them to work or they work harder because I'm there because they feel they need to. So I love hearing stuff like that. Like, I don't even have to say anything to them. They're not my client. But you know what? They came and they're working harder because I'm there. Yeah. And that's where you just walk around like a tip jar in your gym bag. And then when you inspire people like that, they just drop in five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, though. It's like, you know, I've heard from lots of people, you know, that have seen you train and you're just like a warrior in the gym. And you're like, when people are willing to be able to share those stories with other people that they see, like to me, like that's the authentic side of it because so many people don't want to give credibility to anybody else these days. But when they're just like, yeah, you know, like seeing Tamara in the gym, you know, just like working her ass off, you know, like these, like, you know, it's authentic, you know, it must be inspiring if it's got to that level that they're wanting to go out into a community and be able to share those stories. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, um, I've taken up probably enough of your time today. We can't, we can wrap it up. Why don't, uh, you know, like, like plug, like the social media handles, you know, like, like T-Zone Fitness, you know, like the Night of Champions, like go through the list of how people can get in contact with you and like your shows and all that kind of stuff so that you can, uh, some recognition for and people can be steered your way. Well, I, like I said, I have a natural show on July the 27th. Um, and they can follow me on Instagram on T underscore zone underscore fitness. Uh, the Night of Champions is just at Night of Champions. And that's on August 17th. That's an open qualifier for the pro qualifying shows. They can find me on Facebook and they can find me uh, under tzonefitness.com or nightofchampions.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Tamara. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Blake.